in David Scare's Christology book. We left off on page 53 or thereabouts. And if you recall, we are in chapter 6, talking about uh, the implications of the personal union, as Scare puts it. And we've got two sections here. One nice, light, fluffy, hopefully you recognize many components of it, Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And we have looked at Christ as king. Uh, We have only begun to look at Christ as priest, and then we'll get to prophet here in short order. The second half of this chapter, much more complex, uh, communication of attributes. You've got big technical words and these uh, categories that require some mental effort to understand. So we'll take our time and, and, and go through those. Hope, hopefully you'll be able to grasp those concepts. Um, if not, you can always... Uh, you know, let me know on Sunday or fire me an email and um, I can help to clarify as best as I'm able. So again, the first task, prophet, priest, and king. Page 53, we've been looking at that second full paragraph, uh, Jesus as priest. Here the book of Hebrews is especially our friend. Only Hebrews expressly calls Jesus a priest, Scare writes. And I think I would emphasize there the word expressly, because at other parts in the scriptures, Jesus is clearly acting and speaking as a priest. For example, John 17, uh, the conclusion of his sermon in the upper room before they go out into the garden, before he prays in agony and then is betrayed, that is often called his high priestly prayer. And that precisely because we recognize those elements. Again, he's not expressly called the high priest there, but it is often referred to as his high priestly prayer. It's that same night in that same upper room uh, where Jesus uh, institutes his sacrament. And as I took some time to express last week, the nature of the sacrament uh, that we call the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, the nature of that sacrament in and of itself is sacrificial. Simply because Jesus doesn't just give us bread and say, here's me, or wine and say, here's me. But rather, he specifically has the body and blood separated. Take, eat, this is my body, he says of the bread to us. Take, drink, this is my blood, he says of the wine and gives to us. So there's a separation of body and blood which goes right back to the Old Testament and the the high priestly language, the language of priest, making the sacrifice. So we as Lutherans, and Scare is going to articulate this for us, the once and for all sacrifice, as Scripture says, takes place on the cross. But it's precisely that sacrifice made on the cross, the the giving of his body, the shedding of his blood that we consume in in the Lord's Supper. And so we partake of that sacrifice. Uh, That sacrifice made once and for all and then made present for us in all times and places by our Lord Jesus and by his power to subdue all things unto himself. So just by way of preliminary comment, um, we had gone through that paragraph. You have Hebrews, you have John 17, you have the Lord's Supper. Now, dropping down to the last paragraph on page 53, this should then be the new material for us. In a debate with the Pharisees, whether it was lawful for him and his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath, Jesus refers to David. When David ate the bread of the presence, he broke the law. It's interesting. Uh, 
I just recently stumbled across another part, uh, and it was in another book and another text that Dr. Scare has written. His curriculum vitae is, some, is probably in the hundreds in terms of articles and books and everything he's written. He's one of the most prolific Lutheran authors, faithful Lutheran authors, cer certainly at the latter half of the 20th century. The man has written, uh, I think, more than anyone else. But in another one of his texts, he actually, so I think, in fact, I think this other text I was reading is later than this one. Anyway, here he says um, that when David ate the bread of the presence, he broke the law. Elsewhere, Dr. Scare says he didn't break the law. He was within the law. Probably a better way to look at it. Because, well, the reading of the law, again, according to the law itself, according to the Old Testament itself, works this way. That the letter is to be followed, and yet, it's sort of like, it's sort of analogous to this. Like, serve and obey your government, unless your government commands you to do something that God forbids or forbids you to do something that God commands. In other words, there's this, there's this caveat or this place in which the former command is no longer true. And that's true uh, for this as well. Then by parallel, the, the, the letter is that no one but the priests are to eat the showbread. So David by technicality. But here's the thing. The Sabbath is... Not, it's not man who's made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath made for man, you see? So the, the law holds right up until this principle that in David, what was David doing in giving some of his soldiers to eat of the showbread? He was showing them mercy and giving them of necessity. And so then the, the former command is trumped by the latter command. And so it's, it's actually a fully lawful activity. I, I think you can speak of it both ways, as being unlawful, just in the superficial sense of, of breaking the letter of the law, but being perfectly lawful in that the law itself instructs that the law is given for man, not man for the law. The Sabbath is given for uh, man, not man for the Sabbath, you see. In other words, these are ministering tools that God gives for the good of humanity. And if the good of humanity necessitates that they be set aside, you know, in, in some temporary and not inherently wrong way, that's fine. That's perfectly in accord with the law itself. So I know that that's a technical conversation, but it is, it is part of the conversation when we talk about uh, this text and this occurrence of David uh, eating the bread of presence. So continuing on with, with Dr. Scare then in, um, in this paragraph at 53, four lines down, Jesus also refers to the priests who defile the Sabbath, presumably by their sacrificial duties, references to Matthew 12, 1 through 4. He clinches the argument with, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Matthew 12, 6. Jesus is here describing his body as a temple. His opponents deliberately misunderstood Jesus' prediction about the destruction of his body as a temple in order to bring a charge of insurrection against him. Quite clearly, the temple and, quote, something greater than the temple, end quote, is his body in which he offers himself up to God as a sacrifice. What's at the heart of the temple? Sacrifice. When Jesus says, my body is the temple, what's, what's at the heart of his body? Sacrifice. That's the point being made. 
So that all fits neatly into uh, Christ as our priest. Scare continues. Um, this is precisely the way his opponents understood this. Although they feigned ignorance at his trial and actually accused him of planning insurrection through the destruction of public religious buildings. Although the evangelists never directly called Jesus a priest, the concept is clearly present. The temple's significance is determined by the priests who offer sacrifices there. The Greek words for temple, Huron, the holy place, and priest, uh, Herois, the holy man, are clearly related. And reference is given to Matthew 12, 4 through 6. Conceptually, and not only linguistically, temple and priest are related. The presence of the temple demands priests to sacrifice. Without the temple, there are no priests or sacrifices. Jesus' self-designation as temple requires that he also be seen as the priest who offers himself as the sacrifice. Well, hopefully that's clear enough to you. What's a, what's a temple without a priest? What's a priest without a temple? So to say you're the temple is also to indicate that you're the priest and the sacrifice, frankly. All right, well, there's a very, very quick, very quick biblical tour. We could go into much more detail, of course, um, in terms of Christ fulfilling a priestly office or really being the king, the priest. Now we'll see him as the prophet. So far, so good? All right. On to page 54. First full paragraph there. In his prophetic role, Christ is presented as the final revelation of God. So here, too, right off the bat, you see some complexity. Just as he's the temple, the priest, and the sacrifice, so, too, he is also prophet and word. That is, he is the prophet, and he is also the message. So in his prophetic role, Christ is presented as the final revelation of God. The God who spoke to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Hebrews 1.1 So we see, even in that beautiful verse, Hebrews 1.1, there is so much there because there's perfect continuity between the God who speaks through the prophets and now the God who speaks through his Son. There's continuity but there's also discontinuity in this, no longer through the prophets, but now exclusively through the Son. Scare continues. He, Jesus, sees himself as the prophet who is without honor in his own country. During his lifetime, Jesus was received as a prophet or as a teacher who had come from God. By those kindly disposed to his cause, but unaware of his messiahship. That, by the way, is a position that one can only hold momentarily with Jesus, that he is a prophet, a teacher, um, an all-around good guy. You can only hold that position tentatively because this same prophet, teacher, and all-around good guy soon enough claims, as we have seen, to be God's Son and equal to the divinity. 
So then you must say that this prophet, good teacher, and all-around good guy is in fact what he says he is, or he's a liar and a charlatan. All right? So uh, Scare continues, Similarly, the crowds are described as regarding Jesus, as they did John, as one of the prophets. The conviction of the Samaritan woman that Jesus was a prophet, you remember she says, I perceive that you are a prophet, had to be raised to the level that he was the Christ. In the same sense that Jesus understands himself as greater than a priest and a king, he understands himself as greater than a prophet. As he says of himself, something greater than Jonah is here. And Jonah is expressly called a prophet in Matthew 12, 39. Just as it is proper to call Jesus a prophet, it is also necessary to draw a sharp distinction between him in this role and the other prophets. Unlike the other prophets, he does not receive a revelation from and about God, but knows God directly. So again, this is the way in which he is, uh, his prophetic office transcends all the other prophets who are receiving their message immediately. He's not. He's receiving it immediately. It's coming from in his own person. Scare continues. As Francis Pieper says, again, Lutheran a dogmatician from the 20th century, kind of the standard for us, he is superior to all other prophets in that in him, God himself came into the flesh. In Christ, God in his own person taught on earth. And this, by the way, is we, why we often liturgically, uh, I shouldn't say often, all the time, stand for the gospel. It's not to assert that one part of God's word is superior to another part of God's word. It's precisely this realization and then this physical confession where we, where we stand up and make this physical confession that this prophet, this preacher, the one speaking, is in fact different than all others because he is God in human flesh speaking to us. God in his own person teaching on earth. The phrase used customarily in a description of the prophets, including John the Baptist, that, quote, the word of the Lord, or God, came, end quote, is never used to describe Jesus. Unlike any of the prophets, he knows God in the same sense that God knows him. His intimacy with the Father makes him the perfect and complete revealer and revelation of God. The threefold distinction in the offices of Christ focuses the entire Old Testament on the person of Jesus, since he is the continuation and conclusion of the kingly, priestly, and prophetic institutions which held Israel together as a nation, and more specifically, God's people. So in other words, these, these three Old Testament offices, above and beyond all the others, and the others point to Jesus and are fulfilled by Jesus as well, but these three in, in specific, so central to the Old Testament life of God's people, are all fulfilled in Christ and thus find their, their perfection and indeed their, their superabundance in him 
And for us, even us as Gentiles who have been grafted into this Israel, this new Israel, who's Israel defined by the faith, or the same faith that Abraham had, and thus we are sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham. So Christ is our prophet, priest, and king in the fullest sense. Picking back up with Scare, these offices were the fiber out of which they were constituted as one people by Moses, who not only established these offices by divine command, but held them himself. Now, this is an interesting point. Uh, Moses is, in many respects, prophet, priest, and king. Not king in the formal sense, the way that uh, Saul, David, Solomon, etc. are. But still, was he their civil leader? Oh, absolutely. Um, was he their spiritual leader? Absolutely. Um, is he their, their prophet? And, and is he also their, uh, their priest? Well, yeah, absolutely. He's, he's really got all three of those offices in one. That's where, and I may, Scare may actually say this coming up, um, but if he doesn't, I'll say it anyway here. Probably above and beyond all other figures in the Old Testament that point to Jesus, Moses is the, is the most. Moses is the most. If you look for the Old Testament person who most amplifies and puts forward who Jesus is, it's Moses. So we need to especially have that in mind as Lutherans where we've inherited this tradition of sometimes seeing Christ versus Moses as shorthand for law versus gospel, Christ the gospel, Moses the law. And that, that can be a helpful, shorthand way of speaking. I'm not opposed to that by any stretch of the imagination. But far less often do we see the dominant truth, the dominant note that Moses himself and Jesus himself see themselves and their ministry in continuity. Moses understands himself as embodying and pointing to the Christ. After I am dead, a greater than I, a prophet greater than I, capital P, will come. So Moses understands himself as being a foreshadowing of Jesus, and Jesus himself understands him to be the fulfillment of what Moses was. Moses was, of course, in the salvific event of the Old Testament, the, the exodus out of Egypt, the Red Sea crossing, etc. Um, in the salvific event, Moses is the leader. When Jesus is transfigured on the mount, he is speaking with Moses, Elijah too, but Moses, and they're speaking about what? Luke tells us they're speaking about Jesus, Exodus, the salvific event of the New Testament, the salvific event of the entire cosmos that Jesus is leading is described in the way of an Exodus. As Moses was in the first, so Jesus is in the latter and greater. Make sense? Okay. So this is, uh, this is what Scare is, is pointing us to. And again, he may do that even more explicitly here in a minute. But he says, these offices were the, were the fiber out of which they were constituted as one people by Moses, who not only established these offices by divine command, but held them himself. As Jesus stands at the end of Israel's history as prophet, priest, and king, so Moses stands at the beginning in these same offices. The correlation outlined as promised in Deuteronomy 18.15 is made explicitly in Hebrews 3.5, where Moses is described as faithful in God's house and Jesus over it. Moses 
not only sets down written regulations for the prophets, the kings, and the priests, but he embodies these offices and exercises their functions. He gives the people God's revelation, rules them for 40 years, and offers up sacrifices. No other Old Testament figure resembles Jesus more than does Moses. Okay, there it is, right from Scare's own pen. No other Old Testament figure resembles Jesus more than Moses. The characteristic phrase, the word of the Lord came, is also never used of Moses because he knows God face to face, Deuteronomy 34.10. Here you see Moses' superiority over all the Old Testament persons, period. Moses alone knows God face to face, and that's a type and foreshadowing of, of our Lord Jesus, who of course is far greater than Moses. The characteristic phrase, the word of the Lord came, is also never used of Moses because he knows God face to face. Thus, like Jesus, he is greater than the prophets, but he is inferior to Jesus in that through Moses was given the law, but through Jesus Christ came grace and truth, John 1.17. As Jesus is understood as holding a threefold office, all the successors to Moses in their respective offices as prophets, for example, Isaiah, Hosea, Elijah, as kings, for example, David and Solomon, and as priests, for example, Samuel and Abiathar, help us understand Christ's role as God's deliverer. The threefold office of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king is used to describe the work of Christ as well as his fulfillment of and his superiority to the Old Testament figures who held similar offices. Okay, so there we have uh, yet one more important chapter in terms of Christology, not only describing the person of Christ, uh, namely his, um, when, we talk, when we talk about the person of Christ, we're chiefly reflecting on the three points that he is uh, true God, true man, one person, but now moving and reflecting on his office, his offices, uh, prophet, priest, king, etc., fulfiller and fulfillment of the Old Testament. Then we move on to another description of his person, not so much his, his fulfillment of offices, but his communication of attributes. Before we do, I see that there might be a question or two. Yes? It's really interesting to me that, you know, since I was growing up, we were, we were told that God didn't really envision the people of Israel having a king of their own. And the reason why it was never clear, but this clarifies that reason that God had a king in mind all the time. Mm -hmm. Jesus. Yes. So that uh, is just interesting to me that Right. Well, I'll be able to sum up your question uh, in my explanation for those who are watching online. <clears throat> there, there is that very interesting dynamic we're studying First Samuel in our other class, and this very interesting dynamic where the people have been ruled by God, and God has from time to time raised up judges as their deliverers. But the people are looking out at the nations around them, seeing that they have kings, and the people, you know, ever wanting to be like the pagan people around them, they want to have, uh, they want to have a king too. 
God takes this as a great insult because even then he was ruling as their king. And there's this stunning episode where, remember where they abused the ark and uh, they use it as this magic talisman. They go out and lose a victory. I think they lose like 3,000 men or something. It's because God was displeased with them. They, They were being very unfaithful. And so they say, I know, let's go get the ark and this will help us win. I mean, just no respect for God whatsoever, just using the ark as some sort of spiritual good luck charm. And I think, they, I mean, they were slaughtered. I think like 40,000 or something of them died. The ark was captured. But as, uh, as the, the Philistines take the ark into their, into their city, uh, everybody, starts, everybody in the city starts getting sick, starts getting tumors. So they push the ark off to another city. Same thing happens. Same thing happens over and over. To finally, Philistines like the you know the Philistines are like, get this thing out of here. They have a remarkable and miraculous way of, of well, God does of of proving that it's He. But what you see here is that God is in fact fighting for the people. The people wanted to go you know lead God out into the battle, and the people get slaughtered. But then God himself, in the form of this ark, goes out and slaughters innumerable Philistines and so dominates them that they basically sue for peace and send back the ark with uh, tumors made of gold and all of this, uh, this bounty. So God has already very manifestly shown himself to be their king and to be the king in the exactly the opposite way of the earthly kings, which we know so well in, in the scriptures, of course, of the New Testament. Earthly kings demand that you and your children die to protect them, right? That you join the military, that you're conscripted in the military, that you go fight and die in order to protect the king. Christ's kingdom is exactly the opposite. Christ the king, his chief and primary vocation is to die for us and so defeat the greatest of all our enemies, the God of this world, the devil, the world itself, and even our own fallen flesh. So um, God is a God who fights for his people, a king who fights for his people. This is completely opposite the way of the world. So when the people demand for a king, it is outrageous what it is that they say because they say, we want a king to fight for us. And Samuel's going, you already have one in Yahweh, and in fact, the king you think you're going to get, you and your sons are going to end up fighting for him. That's the way of the world. So there's this profound frustration. The people are accused of sinning. God gives them a king anyway and then uses that office of king, um, fulfilled very negatively in the person of Saul, much more positively in the persons of uh, David and uh, Solomon, and then negative again, by and large, through the split kingdoms. There's a few exceptions there. Um, but points forward in this twofold way, who Christ as king will be and who Christ as king won't be. That's probably the dominant theme of the Old Testament uh, kingship is the one whose coming is going to be better than all of these. Yeah, so really rather profound treatment of the, of the office of king. And, and of course we talked about that because the kings were the original anointed ones, uh, messiahs, um, Christ, and so when Jesus is called the Messiah or the Christ, it's really a, a kingly title. Not only does it, and I often focus on this, it uniquely identifies him as the Old Testament Messiah, the promised one, the Savior, but it also uniquely um, uh, marks him as a king. Thus, thus uh, Herod's interest at the birth of Jesus, it's the birth of a Christ, well, what does Herod have to do with that? I mean, isn't he a left-hand kingdom and this is a right-hand kingdom thing? You know, who cares? Why is he so interested? Because a Christ 
is a messiah, a messiah is a king. This is a, this is a king. There is no separation between the left and right hand kingdoms. Herod sees this as someone who's going to come and take away his throne from him. And so he seeks to put uh, the newborn king uh, to death. Okay, well, anyway, thank you for that, that question and that opportunity to talk about the Old Testament. All right, anything else on the, uh, the prophet-priest-king motif? If not, let's, let's get into the communication of attributes. And this is... Uh, it's very necessary. It's very good. It's very enlightening. It's also some of what gives Christology a bad name because it's, it can be very technical and the language is unfamiliar to us. We'll do the best we can. We'll slow down where we need to to understand the communication of attributes. And I'll try to make it uh, down to earth, practical in terms of what's really at stake as we go along. So page 55, the communication of attributes. Scare writes, the traditional Lutheran presentation of the communication of attributes has always been a useful device for understanding the consequences of the personal union. Both the Lutheran and the Reformed parties realized that the Christological questions faced by the church during the first five or six centuries were being revived in their debates. These differences first surfaced in the literary exchanges of the mid-1520s between Luther on the one side and Zwingli, Oclampadius, and Karlstadt on the other, debates which brought to light the radically different Christological understandings of each side. So here we see it very plainly that in terms of history, it's a debate over the Lord's Supper, and then as they're debating about the Lord's Supper, the reasons Zwingli, Oclampadius, Karlstadt are suggesting that Christ's body and blood can't be present there are actually Christological reasons, you see. So then we enter that. Like he can't be, I, I mean, I, again, we've, we've looked at this in terms of Zwingli, Calvin, and the, the idea that the finite cannot contain the infinite. So in other words, how is it that Christ's body and blood, which are finite based on the human nature, can be distributed over so many altars around the globe on a given Sunday morning? So the fact that then Zwingli or Calvin would say they can't, that's now a Christological statement, right? The body and blood of Christ can't be distributed in that way. That's a Christological statement. So you can see how closely those two things relate. Scare continues, such differences became even more evident during Luther's debate with Zwingli on October 1529 at Marburg over the Lord's Supper and permeated their crucially different understandings of the person of Christ. This encounter permanently divided the leaders of the Reformation. Out of this confrontation with the Reformed, first led by Zwingli and then by Calvin, Lutheran Christology developed its characteristic understanding. Okay, that's, I think, a key point, and a key point to remember. In all theological controversies, the church isn't just sitting around inventing these complicated structures. These are, wherever they're orthodox, these complicated structures are in response to heresy, in response to attack. And so we have to very carefully articulate and define and um, in some respects present a system, even though that gets a bad rap, in some respects present a system of knowledge and understanding such that we continue confessing what we've always confessed, but can now answer the heretics as well. 
So that's the main point, is this stuff comes out of controversy, not, um, not the pen of somebody sitting down saying, you know what, I think today I'm going to improve upon theology. <laughs> it's a big difference. In fact, that latter mode is really the mode of heretics. Let's see what creative thing I can come up with to impress people today. All right, scare continues, very bottom of 55. The matter was hardly incidental. Martin Chemnitz, remember he's the second, uh, the second in the line of Lutheran theologians. Martin Chemnitz, a chief architect of the formula of Concord, one of our documents in the Lutheran Confessions, summarized the confessional Lutheran position in his tome, The Two Natures in Christ. As the title suggests, the chief topic of discussion is the relationship of the divine and human in Jesus. This relationship was discussed by Chemnitz under three categories of biblical data called genera, or a singular genus, and comprises the major portion of his book. All right, well, let's pause there for a minute. The first key to, to pick out of here is that uh, these three categories come from biblical data. So we're not inventing categories and then shoving Bible verses in them. We're looking at what the Bible says and we're noticing patterns. We, we do this in many other ways. Uh, one of the easiest to articulate is the different ways in which Christ mentions that he's present. And a little bit tangential to this conversation, but he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Then he says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. I mean, straight rationalism, that's redundant and confusing. Like, well, of course you are. Where one is gathered in your name, there you are, right? Uh, so so we, need to, we need to understand that, that our Lord isn't being foolish. He is articulating different concepts to us. Same with this is my body, this is my blood. A different concept. So we find the biblical data and then we note these different categories. And the same thing is true here for these, what we call genera. We notice all the biblical data is the way in which Scripture speaks about Christ, and we notice these three patterns. Make sense? That's where we're getting these three genera or patterns. Um, all right, so let's just simply pick back up where we left off. Article 7. Uh, this is the formula of Concord, one of the articles um, in uh, our Lutheran Confessions, which is devoted to a discussion of the Lord's Supper, is no less Christological. Lutherans have learned from experience that any error in the doctrine of the sacrament inevitably indicates a prior error in Christology. This understanding was fundamental in the confessional Lutheran revival of the 19th and 20th centuries. Each of the three genera, all right, here are the big words, genus idiomaticum, the genus myostaticum, and the genus apotelismaticum describes an aspect of Christ's person from a different angle though in a sense each overlaps the others. 
It is possible to speak of the first, the second, and the third genus, but this may lead to some confusion as the genus Apotelismaticum and the genus Myostaticum are sometimes reversed by later dogmaticians. All right, well, one thing that is somewhat helpful in trying to keep these things in mind, the genus Idiomaticum, you can see that, that idio in there, which tends to mean oneself. And this is a helpful mnemonic because the idiomonicum, you're basically going to say that, remember how we've said he's true God, true man, and one person? Whatever can be said of the true God and is true of the, of the divine nature is true of the person. Whatever can be said of the human nature and is true of the human nature can be said of the person. So the person can be said to be born, to die, to rise, um, to ascend. Uh, the person can be said to grow in wisdom and knowledge. The person can be said to know all things. That's simply the way the scripture speaks. So we're recognizing that the scriptures themselves and how they speak attribute divine things to the person of Christ and human things to the person of Christ. He's tired. He walks on water. <laughs> you know, uh, He grows in wisdom. He knows all things. So scripture does this thing, and so we've just recognized that the way the scripture teaches, there's a pattern here, and we're going to call that pattern the genus idiomaticum, idio oneself, so referring to the person. All right, and then the genus myostaticum also has a helpful analogy in that if you replace the I with a J, this is Latin, and so that's what you should do in this instance, you have the majestaticum, majesty. And that's a helpful mnemonic for understanding this one, that majesty is what's in, what, in, involved here. In this instance, most specifically, we're talking about the relationship between the two natures. So again, you've got true God, true man, one person. Here we're not so much interested in the one person as we're interested in the two natures and how they relate to one another. And the best way to understand this is that the divine nature actually... Uh, penetrates and gives its powers and abilities to the human nature. We see this, for example, when Jesus appears in their midst in the upper room where all the doors and windows are locked in John 20. Okay? The human body of Christ can do things that our human bodies cannot by nature do. How is this possible? Because of the union of the two natures and because of the divine nature passing on its majesty, myostaticum, its majesty to the human nature. Another angle at this is where the human nature of Christ is worshipped. Um, the sinful woman uh, anoints, his, uh, anoints his feet um, with her tears, wipes them with her hair, uh, worships his body, as it were, and Christ doesn't say, no, no, that's just my human nature. Uh, worship only my divine nature. No, because the divine interpenetrates the human, to worship the human is to worship the divine. That's just the other angle on this, on this particular uh, genus. So the genus myosteticum, majesty, the majesty of the divine to the human. Good? All right, and then the third, the apotelis modicum. Maybe what's the most helpful there is right in the middle that telos or telos. Um, and, a, and a way to think of that is, is toward the end or to the same purpose or goal. Um, <laughs> even if I might technically have that wrong, it serves as a great, as a, 
<laughs> as a great mnemonic because what you're really saying in this one is that whatever the person of Christ does, he does in both natures. Now here you can really see an overlap with the other two. But what this, what this gives us is we don't find in Scripture, it's the negative way of putting it, we don't find in Scripture statements like, and then Jesus died according to his human nature. Or Jesus was afraid according to his human nature. Or Jesus wept according to his human nature. You know, while, while his divine nature was untouched. Yeah. We don't find anything like that. And since we don't find anything like that, we just find that whatever Christ does, he does in both natures. We recognize that pattern, and we simply call that the apotelismaticum. That, they're all, that both natures are working to the same purpose and end. Whatever Christ does, both natures do. Right? Um, now, that's... Uh, that's an oversimplification to be sure, but, hope, but that's as, about as simple as I can make it. And now as we delve into these topics one by one and deeper, you can see if I've oversimplified or distorted anything in those very brief uh, descriptions. Okay, so let's, without further ado, jump into the genus Idiomodicum on page 56. The genus idiomaticum is defined in this way, because there is in the one person, Jesus Christ, a divine nature and a human nature, attributes which properly belong essentially to one nature are always ascribed to the whole person of Christ. The divine attributes are according to the divine nature and the human attributes are according to the human nature. It is improper to speak of the divine and human natures as if they are so separated as to become, in fact, two persons, as was done in the ancient church by the Nestorians. The genus is essential, or this genus is essential, for a proper understanding of the atonement, in which one person, Jesus Christ, God and man, offers his very human life for that of the sins of the world which by virtue of the personal union is joined to the Son of God, who makes it possible for this one human life to be the perfect sacrifice and just payment for the sins of the world. In other words, if Christ merely dies according to his human nature, and that's all the more we want to say about it, then all we can say about the cross is that another human being died. And if it was simply one human being who died, well, that's worth one human life. But since that human life that dies is the life of God's Son, the one incarnate Christ, that sacrificial death can be indeed for all men, for all people. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, so then understanding, again, you don't have to understand the fancy formal language of genus idiomaticum, but holding these principles and understanding what principles are herein represented really hold together Christ and his work on the cross for us. And in fact, you can see this dishevel where people either have a Nestorian concept of Christ, they separate him into two persons, the atonement tends to fall apart or where people mess up the atonement, don't like the atonement, then their Christology inevitably falls apart and messes up. So these two things hang together, the person and work of Christ. All right, Scare continues. Another clear demonstration of the importance of maintaining the genus idiomaticum is the church's attitude toward the Virgin Mary. 
was the Virgin Mary only the mother of the human nature of Christ, or is it better to use the ancient church designation of her as mother of God, the Theotokos, the genetrix dei, I mean, both of those basically just mean mother of God, <clears throat> the God-bearer. The Reformed have generally favored the Nestorian position and denied Mary that title, though Calvin did not. Interesting. The Lutherans insisted that this is the proper designation for Mary, to say that the Virgin Mary was only the mother of the human nature of Christ and not the mother of God would suggest that Christ was not one but two persons. Because what's in her womb is human Jesus, but not God Jesus. Or if what's in her womb is God Jesus, then she is in fact the God-bearer, you see. So uh, what you end up calling Mary and this is really the importance of Mary, by the way, is what, what you say about Mary, you end up saying about Christ. Is she the Theotokos or not? Is she the God-bearer or not? It's really not anything to do with Mary as such. It's really more to do with your Christology. If the one in her womb is true God and true man, then she is the God-bearer, the mother of God. And if the one nursing at her breast in her arms is true man and true God, then she is the mother of God. <clears throat> Scare continues, in this personal union, or unio personalis, so there you just see like the one person being emphasized, each nature retains its own qualities or attributes so that they do not become properties of the other. Okay, when you mix up the two natures, the divine and the human, then you might have a divine that gets tired and a human that never does, and you end up with something that's neither human nor divine. And we know we've fallen into Eutychianism. So these are two opposite errors. Nestorianism so separates them. Eutychianism so combines them that they both end up destroying the person of Christ. So, Scare continues, the union of the two natures did not result in the formation of a new substance as Eutyches had held, a position which the Lutherans have been accused of holding by the Reformed. Contemporary proponents of classical Reformed theology do not deviate from the strictures of their official confessional documents directed against the Lutheran understanding of Christ. Thus, the second Helvetic Confession, now quoting, we acknowledge, therefore, that there be in one and the same Lord two natures, the divine and human nature. And we say that these are not so conjoined or united that they are not swallowed up, confounded, or mingled together, but rather united or joined together in one person, the properties of each being safe and remaining still, so that we do worship one Christ our Lord, and not two. Therefore, we do not think nor teach that the divine nature in Christ did suffer, or that Christ, according to his human nature, is yet in the world, and so in every place. Uh-oh. There's a problem. Because now you have a Christ who could be here, not in his body, and a Christ who could be up there in his body. How many Christs do we have? We have a Christ in the body and a Christ out of the body. We have two Christs. So, again, you can, deny, you can deny till you're blue in the face that you're an historian, but when your conclusion ends up being a perfect articulation of historianism, let each one judge for himself, I suppose.
Scare continues, the reformed hypothetically hold to the genus Idiomaticum, hypothetically being the key word there. But this is a verbal and not a real predication, as each of the natures remain not only distinct but separate. Thus, to this day, Reformed theologians do not operate with any meaningful understanding of the genus Idiomaticum, and in effect still deny the personal or hypostatic union of Christ. The genus uh, Myostaticum comes next. Before we move on, anything on the Idiomaticum? Is that clear? I, I tend to think that the Idiomaticum is... I mean, while it certainly boggles the mind, and while it certainly at points becomes incomprehensible, and we simply stand in awe of what's revealed uh, of Christ in the Scriptures, and we realize the task of theology is, is not to rationally comprehend, but simply to rightly confess, um, all, the, all those caveats in place, I tend to think the idiomaticum is one of the most just down-to-earth if you're familiar with the scriptures, if you're familiar with Christ, you kind of go, yeah, yeah, I, I know that the scriptures say this. They attribute to Christ human things. They attribute to Christ divine things. Yeah, I get that. And if you get that, well, then you get the idiomaticum. Yeah. Okay, on to uh, genus myostaticum. This concerns itself with the communication of divine attributes to the human nature of Christ. So now we're zoomed in on the relationship between the two natures. We're seeing the divine nature communicating its attributes, its magisterial attributes, to the human nature. So Scare continues, While the Reformed held, at least according to their own definitions, to the genus Idiomaticum, and the genus Apostelismaticum, that Apostelismaticum, that's the last one we'll get to, they rejected the genus myostaticum because it indicated that God's majesty and glory were communicated to the human nature. The philosophical axioms of Reformed theology, here's the key, this is the, why they reject it, the philosophical axioms, not the biblical axioms, not the theological ax axioms, the philosophical axioms of Reformed theology, which in practice become their theology's formal principle, that means their... Uh, their formal authority. Because even where the scriptures contradict this, they're going to hold and say, well, the scriptures can't, can't fail logic. So what's really boss there? Logic. Right, that's where it's the formal principle. So this in practice becomes their theology's formal principle. They deny that the infinite is capable of any association, or excuse me, that the finite is capable of any association with the infinite. Infinitum non est capax infinity. And hence, the human nature of Christ, which is finite, is incapable of receiving any divine properties which are infinite by virtue of the personal union of the two natures in Christ. So here's just an outright rejection of this. You run into all kinds of problems here because any miracle that Christ does in and through his human person, uh, anything that Christ in his body does that is contrary to a body, is a big, huge problem for the Reformed. They have to find another way around describing how it is that he can do this. And the answer isn't simply because he's God's son. So you'll see at least some of the ways that they try to do an end around on this, attributing to him superpowers by the Holy Spirit and all of this other stuff, which is just nonsense. Nonsense. And ends up really de-glorifying him. 
because what's the difference between a regular human being like one of us empowered to do miracles by the Holy Spirit? Elijah, who is empowered by the Holy Spirit to raise the dead. Um, or Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit to raise the What's the difference between them and Christ then? Nothing. Yeah, you, got, you have a big problem here in Reformed Christology. Well, let's carry on. Calvin taught that the person of the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, was of such an immeasurable essence that he could not be restricted to the human nature of Christ. Contrary to this view, the Lutherans held that there is a complete incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and apart from his incarnation, there is no saving knowledge of God. See, the problem when you push this uh, finitum non est capax infinity, when you push it to its logical conclusion, which you should, it's a logical statement, um, you realize that the incarnation can't even take place. Because how can in this man the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily? I mean, that line of scripture alone just should end. Well, it does end Reformed Christology. It should end Reformed Christology for you. <laughs> All right. The Lutheran position was summarized in the phrase logos non extra carnum. Apart from the flesh, there is no existence of the Word. The Word becomes flesh. You no longer have a fleshless Word, or you have a different Word than that Word which is enfleshed, you see. Now, notice how this isn't a philosophical principle. This is a theological principle based on the, the words of Scripture, the Word became flesh. There's nothing left over. Right? He doesn't say, most of the word became flesh. Some of the word became flesh. No, the word became flesh. All right. For Lutherans, the genus myostaticum meant that the divine attributes not only were assigned to the human nature, but were operative in and through it. Christ performed his own miracles based on his own divinity. Thus, the human nature of Christ is to be worshipped and adored because it subsists in the person of the Son of God. So you find people who Jesus heals, other people who run into him, they, they wrap their arms around his feet, they bow down and worship him. Um, I mean, even, the, even the wise men bow down and worship him in, in his little infant flesh. I mean, this is idolatry according to, you know, if you, again, if you follow the logical principles of the reform, this would be idolatry because they're wor worshiping the creature and that which is merely man and because they lack the, the genus myostaticum. To demonstrate the antiquity of their position, the Lutherans appended the catalog of testimonies to the Book of Concord. This is great. This is just a long list of church fathers who agree with us. It goes on for page after page after page. Cyril's on the Incarnation is approvingly cited, and here's the quotation from Cyril, early church father. The Word introduced himself into that which he was not, in order that the nature of man also might become what it is not. There's the key line, that the nature of man might become what it is not. I mean, I can hear the, I can hear the Reformed screeching in the background. But this is Cyril. I mean, this goes back to the ancient church fathers. The word introduced into himself into that which he was not in order that the nature of man also might become what it was not. Resplendent. This is the nature of man. 
resplendent by its union with the grandeur of divine majesty. On the Mount of Transfiguration, what shines? The face of Jesus. It's not that the word has to come outside of the body and manifest itself. The word shines through the face of Jesus. So the human face of Jesus glows with celestial divine light. This is the genus Myostaticum. If you, really, that's the one thing you have to remember to understand the Myostaticum, probably. Uh, if you want to just keep it very simple, transfiguration. What's shining? His human face is shining with divine light. That's the Myostaticum. So, again, once more to, to Cyril, just mid-sentence here. The grandeur of the divine majesty which has been raised beyond, the na- beyond nature rather uh, than that it has cast the unchangeable God beneath its nature. Uh, its nature. In other words, at the incarnation, the humanity uh, receives the properties of God. It doesn't bind and limit God. So this is an important point of the myostaticum. You hear majesty. Well, what's magisterial? The divine nature or the human nature? The divine is magisterial. It rules over and gives its powers to the human, as we see in the transfiguration. What is not magisterial? The human isn't magisterial in such a way that it limits the divine nature. I mean, this is really what happens when you have Calvin's uh, Jesus had to sneak in through an open window in John 20. Uh, the human so rules God that God can't do what God wants to do, but the, is, he's bound to the limitations of what's human. So here you see Calvin and Calvinism in direct co- uh, contradiction with Cyril. Mm. I was optimistic we'd get to the third genus, but not today. So next week we'll pick back up with these reflections on uh, Cyril and the genus uh, Myostaticum. We'll close this out. We'll get into the final genus, the Apotelus modicum. So if you're following along at home, we'll pick up on 58. And, you know, I don't, I don't suspect we'll likely get much, much past the end of this chapter. So I would just say 58 through 65. If we do anything, we'll just poke our noses into the next on the sacrificial death of Christ. The Lord be with you.